Hey, JQ, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. All right. I wanted to have a discussion with you about this book that you read by Tim Keller. Yeah. The Reason for God. Yeah, The Reason for God. It was, uh, Can we go through this one? Yeah. yeah I'd love to love to talk you through it. It was a really interesting book. All right. Well, the first thing I'm interested in is, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in, is uh, his background. So can you share with us um, his background and a little bit about his church as well? Because I understand it's a not a conventional church, exactly. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah, um, Tim Keller, I'll just call him uh, pa- Pastor Keller. Um, he was in- initially from Pennsylvania, and um, he went to seminary and kind of had a, from up, he was from a middle-class family and went to university, the Bucknell University, and ultimately went to sem- seminary and decided to be a pastor right after university. So he kind of knew, I suppose, from a relatively early age that he wanted to, to go into the ministry. Um, and he ultimately did a doctorate in ministry. Um, and complete his doctorate, and so he kind of went straight through and studied the the Christian faith in an academic context, which is interesting. I guess that exposed him to a lot of apologetics and these arguments for for God and defenses of you know the Christian record in history, um, and so that put him in a strong position to be able to I, I suppose defend against some of the attacks on the faith from people like Dawkins and um, and Harris and others. Um, he moved, so he that's kind of his background, and he ultimately moved to New York in the late eighties. And it was interesting. Um, people were kind of saying that when he, when he was initially moving to New York, I guess he was moving with um, his, with a small family. He had um, a wife and, and uh, three small kids at the time. Um, and so this is in the, in the late eighties and they moved to get a new church um, in New York. And he was told that this early phase, um, as he was thinking about moving the church and talking to other pastors and getting advice that it was a fool's errand. Mm. You know, church meant moderate or conservative. The city was li- was liberal and edgy. You know, church meant families. New York was filled with young singles and non-traditional quote-unquote households. Church meant most of all belief, but as Manhattan was the land of skeptics, critics, and cynics, right? Mm. Um, you know, the middle class, the traditional strong base of the church, um, was weak in New York City. It had fled the city um, to the surrounding boroughs and, and to New Jersey and other areas, um, leaving you know, the city full of, because, partly because of rising costs and crime. And that left the city, you know, with just both ends of the spectrum on the far ends, right? The sophisticated and the hip, the wealthy and the poor, you know. And most of the people, he was told, were highly skeptical of the idea of church. Um, yeah. And so, but despite this, he thought that there was a need for um, a church a church in the city and for someone to you know, answer whatever need there, whatever demand there was to, to hear the gospel, um, for someone to be there to 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 answer the call, um, and so that led him to, you know, to open a church in the city, and so um, he he did, and and now I guess by the end of two thousand seven, I'm not sure what the numbers are exactly today, but by the time the book was written in two thousand seven, the church had more than five thousand attendees uh, every week, and um, mm. had spawned more than a dozen daughter congregations in the inner in the immediate metropolitan area of New York, so all spread throughout the city. Um, it's very multi-ethnic. It's young, an average of age of about thirty. Um, it's more than two-thirds single, interestingly enough, um, and you know dozens of other similar, similarly orthodox-believing congregations have sprung up in Manhattan, I and mean, hundreds of others in the other four boroughs of the city. And so it's interesting. He, he kind of mentions that the churches. It's not you know they didn't have to. You know someone someone from the from the south once came to a church and was expecting to see um, you know something some, some gimmicks that he was using to attract the city city uh, city slingers um and after the after the sermon he came up to him and said you know 
where where are the dancing bears? He's like, you know, he's like, that was a, you know, you're just preaching the gospel. It was, you know, no ordinary music and no fireworks. You know, what's going on? Um, awesome. so it's a kind of a very interesting movement that he's played a part in. So um, that's awesome. Okay. So he has a unique perspective, I think, on the gospel as well, because many of the people that come to him come from many different, you know, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, political backgrounds, you know, ages all across the spectrum. And so you know, he's heard the questions of a broad group of people on the and the types of things that, you know, I guess different people struggle with when it comes to adopting Christian beliefs. So um, yeah, I think he has a very unique perspective that's that I'm excited to share. Okay, great. All right. So now the next thing I want to look into is uh, how he thinks about science and religion and yeah. how to uh, fit together or, or, or don't fit together. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So I think that the first, actually the point that he starts, that he, that he starts the book off with, um, he seems to believe it's so important, a point that he actually begins the book with this point is that um, you know, religion and science are not opposed, um, in that, you know, in that actually, um, you know, in society, the kind of movement, there's kind of this idea among many that, um, so actually, let me, let me step back and say, there are many people on the, let's say, you know, the secular side argue that, um, religious fundamentalism is, is growing, right? Um, you know, there's a there's a religious crisis. Religion's becoming a greater, greater issue. It's a disease, a cancer inflicting the world, um, and we have to really fight it, fight it back. Right? Um, that's something they'll say. People on the on the religious side, though, often say, "Hey, religion is dying. Dying. Church membership is down. Um, secularism's on the rise." Um, and he points out actually that both are right. Interestingly enough, um, sounds sounds contradictory, but it's not. Um, you know, both both extremes are are increasing. You know, I guess relatively. I guess moderate belief is is phasing out, um, but religious fundamentalism, orthodox, or really orthodox religions, for example, in Judaism, orthodox Judaism is growing, whereas conservative Judaism is declining, and secularism is declining. So both ends of the spectrum are right. People are fleeing from the middles into mm. the poles, which is a you know one of those perturbing trends that we see across multiple aspects of of modern life, whether economically and religious as well, um, kind of into the extremes. And so he points that out to say, hey. Um, you know, for one, you know, this is the truth. You know, the narrative that we often hear um, is false um, on both sides. Um, you know, this is what's really happening. And neither group is kind of you know, acknowledging, I guess, the fact that both is seeing some ascendancy. And so the kind of moral high ground that both tries to claim when saying that we're actually fading out, is kind of false, which is an interesting point. And they jump from there to say, you know, I guess one exception to that, though, um, this isn't necessarily the narrative arc that he employs, but an interesting point that he jumps into after this is an exception to that is the percentage of scientists who believe in God has held relatively steady um, at about 40%. There was a survey that was done asking scientists if they believe in a personal God um, who communicates with humans and speaks to humans and I forget the exact language. Um, although, you know, and basically 40% answered yes to that language um, in the early 20th century. And the same survey was run again mid 20th century and towards the end. And um, those numbers that actually stayed perhaps surprisingly constant. Um, and so Dawkins had a famous point in, in one of his in one of his books, The God Delusion, talking about how essentially scientists don't believe in God. Um, and that's that's false. You know, the, the scientist um, Robert J. Gould is famous for saying that, you know, either half of my colleagues are fools or science and religion are not opposed. They're orthogonal. Right. And so um, he, he invokes that point as well. And says actually scientists are, are actually maintaining their faith um, at higher numbers than most might expect. And the numbers are higher, even the base numbers are higher than one expect. 
Um, and so that's, a, I think, a couple of interesting points I start to book off with. Okay. So what about um, beauty and desire? I understand he's got some interesting points about that. Yeah, I think I'll briefly touch on that. Yeah, he 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 makes a point that's kind of similar to points that some of the other apologetics authors that we've heard from um, have made, like the author of The Language of God, for example, where he makes this point that, you know, we, he, so I guess one, one way of putting it is um, every one of our desires exists. And as far as we know, almost all of them are desires that can be satisfied. So for example, we feel hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. You know, this is C.S. Lewis point, um, a famous one as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we feel sexual desire or well, there's such a thing as sex. You know, we, you know, except we, we feel sleep and we, and we yearn for sleep. Well, there's such a thing as sleep and such a thing as rest and all these desires that we feel, each of them um, has a, you know, there is some way to fulfill it. And so he talks about, so C.S. Lewis said, well, the desires of our heart, the desires for things that are kind of supernatural, this kind of universal yearning that mankind seems to have for God that, you know, spans history, um, spans culture, is about, about as universal as any other aspect of the human experience. Um, the fact that this lives within us seems to be evidence that, you know, or seems to suggest, very, very vaguely suggest, he admits, but it seems to be one signpost um, towards God saying that, hey, um, maybe per- perhaps, just perhaps, that desire exists um, because there's potential for it to be filled. Um, and so that's kind of a, a narrative, more of a narrative point. Um, and, and kind of, but I think it's a, a somewhat interesting one that both C.S. Lewis um, and, and, and Tim Keller make. Okay, very good. All right. Now, the other thing that I'm interested in hearing about is I understand he has an interesting take on Christianity and, and freedom. You know, in the United States, people are really big on freedom. So uh, I'm curious <laughs> of interest yeah. to our listeners. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, he, he has a chapter where he talks about is Christianity a street jacket and how that's actually one of the, that belief, that conception of Christianity as a street jacket, as something that will limit one's freedom, um, is one of the main blockers, actually, that keeps from a lot of secular people from adopting the belief, um, the religion. And he says a lot of people don't, you know, actually the primary reasons that they don't adopt Christianity aren't because they don't, you know, or isn't they're not logical based arguments in many cases it's an idea that hey i don't like this religion i don't want to live that way you know it's, it's very emotional points which is interesting um those are a lot of the ones and a lot of the questions the concerns that he encountered um in new york from young skeptics um you know were, were of that form when he was trying to you know, find people to attend his church or um you know, listening to the concerns of, of young people who'd wandered in um and so so he, he gives a couple of quotes that he kind of tries to tries to tackle. So when he says, you know, Christians believe that that they have the absolute truth that everyone else has to believe or else, said Keith, a young artist living in Brooklyn, that attitude endangers everyone else's freedom. That was his main concern. Um, and Chloe, another young artist, um, said a truth, a one truth fits all approach is just too confining. The Christians I know don't seem to have the freedom to think for themselves. I believe each individual must determine truth for him or herself. Um, and he talks about the different discussions he had with these people, which were interesting. Um, one thing I guess I'll highlight from that is, um, I guess, kind of talking about the points that he makes here reminds me of a, of a point that I've heard made in, in other contexts, thinking about freedom. And this is the idea that there's, you can think about freedom, and there's a couple of ways to think about freedom. There's a freedom from and a freedom to. Um, he invokes this implicitly. He says, he gives the example of learning to play the piano. 
you know, to learn to play the piano, uh, to have the freedom to express yourself in the piano and to play, you know, the, the great works of Beethoven and Bach, etc. You have to restrict your freedom from freedom from practice, uh, namely. So you have to sit down at the at the piano and practice your scales and practice the song and learn to read music and all these things, and that takes time and takes effort and um, is definitely a restriction. Um, and so he makes a distinction to say, hey, there are freedoms from and freedoms too. So freedom, so to to gain a freedom too, oftentimes you have to give up a freedom from. And so he says, actually, um, it's important to note that a lot of religions um, are are of this sort. Like you know, you are. Um, you're you're taking part in a discipline of sorts um, and you're gaining a new perspective on life, um, a new sense of meaning, things like this. And so I think it's just an, an interesting distinction to make. I think the key point is to take away that interesting distinction that when someone invokes freedom, what type of freedom are they talking about? And the few freedoms are perhaps diametrically opposed. Uh, so I thought that was a compelling point. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, now, what about the question of evil? Yeah. Yeah, this is, I think, an important one. Um, Another big concern that a lot of young people and from secular backgrounds have is, um, you know, so for example, Helen, a law student that he spoke to, said, "I have to doubt any religion that has so many fanatics and hypocrites. There are so many people who are not religious at all who are more kind and even more moral than many of the Christians I know." Um, you know that's a that's a you know, point that she made, and, and someone else said, Jessica, another law student, said, "The church has a history of supporting injustice, of destroying culture. Um, if Christianity is a true religion, how could this be?" Um, and obviously people like like Dawkins really like to talk about the Crusades and other crimes you know, that were uh, unfortunately um, committed by members of the church historically. Um, I think this is an important point and really is a, a blocker for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm a, a couple of things I'll invoke here. So one is there's a an interesting analogy about, about water, right? So there's the truth of the, of the religion. And then there's, and you can think of that like pure water. And then there's the vessels that that's contained in, you know, flawed humans. And so one way of saying, okay, um, a pure water, if it flows through a, a dirty container, then the output, if you if you if the container then pours forth, um, will be will be dirty. Right? That doesn't mean the truth itself was dirty. Um, you know, if if you if corrupt people, you know, corrupt people can use, you know, real. So for example, people like the you know, really really evil dictators over time. History have used, you know, people's impulse to protect their family, um, you know, as a as for for evil purposes, right? To to get people to fight wars, to hate groups that were allegedly hurting them, etc. And so these pure impulses, or potentially pure impulses, can be corrupted, right? And so truths can be can be contained by by dirty vessels. And um, another point they made was, hey, um, Christianity actually, you're going to find a lot of imperfect people in Christianity because a lot of Christianity, it's it's a lot of people who are attracted to it are people who are sick, right? They're, it's a hospital for the sick in some ways, right? And so you'll find a lot of sick people, um, you know, who need healing. You know, some of them might find that, hey, they might recognize that they need healing and they'll come for healing. They'll come to, to get better. Um, and, you know, and Christian churches welcome those people in over time. And so you'll see a lot of people that you find in the church are sometimes the people who recognize that they need healing, which are not necessarily the most perfect people. At least not the ones who look the most perfect. Um, and so, you know, and that's part of the, the beauty of the, of, of the faith, actually. And so he makes that point. And I think kind of as a retort to Dawkins and others, he makes the point that, you know, religion and violence aren't paired, that these things are orthogonal. In fact, some of the greatest um, atrocities of the 20th century were, were propagated, were perpetuated, were, I guess, um, 
you know, the result of communist regimes, right? They grew forth from Russian, Chinese, Cambodian, um, you know, obviously Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia. These were not religious groups. These were you know, secular groups. And so and these things are orthogonal. That's kind of a counter example um, to say that they're bound, um, which I think is a compelling point to make. North Korea, right? These are not um, Christian groups. These are, you know, it's perfectly possible to commit heinous atrocities without religion. And in fact, the greatest uh, antagonists to things like slavery, um, abolitionists, many of the early abolitionists were Christian and defended, and basically all their abolitionist arguments were predicated upon the notion of fundamental human rights, which were fundamentally bound in Christian in their faith. Um, and so that's an important point, I think, to note. All right, very good. Now, last, there's this concept of a leap of faith. What's that about? Yeah, that's a... That's an important point. I think the, I guess the way to, to make that point is that Tim Keller is basically saying every belief system has fundamental axioms that it that it's invoking implicitly or explicitly. Right? Whether you know it or not, you're depending upon some fundamental axioms. And so, um, you know, there are many people who are more quote unquote more relativist and say, you know, as some of the example, some of the quotes I gave earlier said that. Christianity, Christianity can't be the only true religion, right? Um, you know, any kind of one truth fits all religion is 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 broken, right? And that's kind of a a, a very subtle invocation of a point that's been made many many times by others. And the famous analogy that people might recognize is, you know, the analogy of the the seven blind men and the elephant. And so, you know, in the story, um, there are seven blind men, or um, I might be getting the numbers wrong, the exact number wrong, but you'll get the idea. Uh, and an elephant, and each one is feeling the elephant, a different part of the elephant. So one is touching the tusk, um, another is, is touching the trunk, another the leg, uh, another the tail. The, the person touching the tail says, well, the elephant, um, hmm, this elephant, it doesn't know it's an elephant. It says this, 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 this creature is, is you know, long and thin, and and like like a rope, um, and the guy touching the the leg says, "No, it's thick and sturdy, like a tree trunk." Uh, another guy touching the you know the tusk says, "No, it's smooth and hard, you know, like 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 smooth like sanded stone, and etc. etc." Um, and you know the the moral of the story is, well, each of these men was blind, and they're all only seeing a part of the truth. The reality is much more complex, much more elegant. Arguably, it's a this, you know this elegant cre- elegant creature called you know called the elephant. And, but what, what Tinkel points out is that that example is being told from the perspective of someone who is the only sighted person around, or at least the only among the, the people invoked in the story, right? Um, and so there's actually a tremendous amount of arrogance implicit in that, in that story, basically saying, well, I know, I can see the entire elephant. And so I know that each of you is only seeing a part of the elephant. I'm not also only seeing part of the elephant. Right, I'm I'm from a perspective of, of enlightenment. I'm telling you this, um, and that's I thought it was a really interesting point that, um, you know, and, the, and that's kind of just an analogy to show that's just a, an example to show that in many cases that's true. Whenever you're saying you know one religion, all the other religions can't be right, it can't be one fits all. Well, you're basically saying all the other religions are wrong when you say that, and that only you're right. Right, every religion that says that their religion is right as it's exclusive of other religions you're basically negating all of them. So you're making an equivalent claim. Um, although it seems superficially um, kind of more, a little bit more um, 
a little bit less exclusive. So um, I think that was a, that was a powerful point that I wanted to to touch on. All right. Are there any uh, takeaways that you're going to get from this book and apply to your life? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I I think um you know one of the things that I guess I found interesting was one of the things they talked about was how he's tried to reach people with different religions and, and the ways that their that their concerns um, or the things that they found difficult about the religion somewhat were were varied. So, for example, a lot of people from the West he mentioned and from Western cultures looked at Christianity and struggled with the idea of of a God who you know perhaps sometimes seemed harsh to them or cruel or this notion of judgment they didn't like um, or the notion of sin. And he talks a lot about that and debunks a lot of misconceptions about it, but um, he talks about how a lot of people struggle with those notions. Whereas he talked about how some people from some other cultures, um, I'm not sure if this is an accurate characterization, but some Islamic cultures, for example, um, you know, they come at the, at the religion and they actually struggle with the opposite points. They find the notion of a, of a, of a God who as a disciplinarian, very natural perhaps, um, and perhaps struggle with the idea of a, of a you know, God who, you know, is forgave us without without asking anything in return and is loving and says turn the other cheek. You know, in a lot of cultures, based on um, in a lot of cultures, tribal cultures and many others, um, based on um, kind of glory and honor and things like this, this notion of turning the other cheek is highly offensive. And so he talks about how and I thought it was interesting. I thought kind of coming to coming to each person, understanding their context, really stepping in their shoes. Um, and approaching and really listening and hearing what they struggle with and approaching it from there, I thought was a, was a powerful point. And I really liked your book um, on seeking Allah, finding Jesus from that perspective, um, the brief that you gave um, on that. I think uh, that's another example of how different people come with such different priors and struggle with perhaps opposite things. Um, and I guess one thing I'll note that the, that the author also noted was that Christianity is kind of unique as a religion in many ways. But one of the ways that's interesting is it seems to be the most, the religion that's you know, that's happened to actually take root in the most divergent set of, of cultures. So you know, Judaism is largely centered and is still largely centered in, um, in you know, a certain in an ethnic group um, to a certain extent, um, you could argue. Um, you know, Islam is um, still largely centered in the Middle East, in a particular region, Hinduism in India, um, you know, Buddhism in, in, the, in the East. Primarily, although Buddhism is more of a perhaps more of a school of thought than a religion, but that's something we can come to in a different time. Um, Christianity, though, has found you know is actually I think nearly majority actually in other countries in 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 um, in, uh, in the in Asia and Africa um, in South America. It's not purely North America and Europe. It's um, it obviously was born in in in, in the Levant. I um, mean, so Christianity is. They've been taken up by a lot of different a lot of different cultures over time, which I think is an interesting point worth worth uh, contemplating. All right, listen, I appreciate your time, JQ. Yeah, um, for sure, appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you. My- Hi, thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at ChristianBrief.com. That's C H R I S T I A N B R I E F dot com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at christianbrief.com.